Welcome to the Ram Iyer Podcast with your host, Ram Iyer, thought leader, author, keynote speaker, workshop leader, and mentor. Listen to his engaging conversations with experts from across the world and his personal insights that will help you create a better life, become more successful, and achieve your personal greatness. Now, here's Ram! Welcome to Business Thinking Radio. I'm Ram Ayer, your host and president of the Business Thinking Institute in Princeton. Today's show is a conversation with Ron Carucci, who's the managing partner of Navalin. There are many smart and pedigreed people who fail to succeed, or at least do not achieve the kind of success that they would like or they think they deserve. Among entrepreneurs, it leads to business failure. Three out of four businesses fail. Among the millions who work for companies, small and large, many aspire to climb to senior positions, but few attain them. The percentage who do is in the small single digit. Today, we are delighted to have Ron Carucci, the managing partner of Navalent, an organizational consulting firm out of Seattle. Ron has written over 75 articles for the Harvard Business Review and Forbes. He's given two TED Talks in 2017 and has been on over 100 podcasts. Most importantly, he conducted a 10-year study of what makes certain executives successful and others not. His clients include some of the biggest names in business. Welcome, Ron. Ron, so great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. You've been on a journey of reinvention and repackaging yourself as you figure out a lot of things from your experience, your interviews with accomplished people, and your coach. So what were some key things you learned that would be beneficial to people who are in business, people who are aspiring to executive roles who are listening to this podcast? Well, I think I just wrote for my LinkedIn article, I'm consolidating the wins of 2017 and some of my own lessons and some of my hopes for 2018. And one of the things I think I discovered, or maybe rediscovered, was how wonderful help is and how reticent we are to ask for it. Most of us don't like to ask for help. We don't like to appear weak or inadequate. We don't want to have to be a burden to somebody. But what's so interesting is as people in helping professions, we expect others to admit their need for us. And they'd be quite comfortable with that. But for us to acknowledge our own needs for others, sometimes it doesn't come as easy. But for me, you know, help is my love language. I, I can't get enough of it. And I, I rediscovered in a love affair with the idea of the importance of having others in our journey with us, the, other, the importance of inviting others into the story to do their part to help, you know, progress our own aspirations and our, our dreams and to help us during the parts where it's hard. My gosh, I hope for 2018 that even the most accomplished of leaders and the most successful of professionals will decide that there's somebody else that can help them and go seek that help. You did this 10-year study and interviewed, what, about 2,700 people or so over the 10-year period. What are some key things you learned about what it takes to succeed in business? So there was lots of insights that that data revealed for us in terms of the question we set out to answer was, why is it that people aspiring to broader roles of influence in organizations and at higher levels of executive leadership, why is it that more than half of them fail in the first 18 months? Why have we for decades accepted this as an okay statistic of failure. And more perplexingly, how is it that people who in the middle of an organization were seen as, you know, the second coming, as high potential, as terrific, as, you know, 
phenomenally talented as categorized in the highest boxes of whatever categorization companies were using. And suddenly, within a year or so, they're a disaster. Mm-hmm. That just made no sense to us. That, of course, you know, recruiters love that reality because it's an annuity for them. But for everybody else, the carnage of those failures is quite extensive. When you think about careers and families and missed opportunities and the disruption to organizations and the morale of people, it's a horrible litany of consequences. And so we thought, gosh, we can do better. It began with a personal story of an executive calling me who had been part of one of our transformational journeys and was offered and took on the chance to lead at a much higher level and nine months later was fired. It just was completely dumbfounding to us hmm. that this was possible. So that inve- we, we went in to investigate what could have happened to him and why. How could we have misjudged his talent so much? Only to find he was just another statistic. And that's what led us to our 10 years of research. And I think the two major discoveries was, given how many landmines organizations put in the way of these promising leaders on their way up on the ascent to high levels, it's actually a wonder any of them succeed really, because there are so many potholes put in front of them that actually hinder their chances of being effective in the roles they're given. That was discouraging to discover. So, what so was Ron, very encouraging these... to discover was, on the flip side, uh, on the other side of the ledger, we actually got to isolate the 50% or so of those executives that actually succeed in higher positions, that, that ascend to the highest levels of organizations and actually thrive once there. And we were able to isolate with a lot of rigor four very consistent recurring patterns that set those leaders apart to help them thrive. So we were able to both uncover the profound extent of the problem for what it is that causes leaders to derail on their way up, but we were also able to isolate the capabilities required to make that ascent and to succeed once there. See, two things that jumped into my mind as I listened to you. One is you're saying that even though the failure rate is high, people seem to accept the high failure rate. Doesn't that sound odd to you? It's very odd to me, but it's not new news, right? We've known for decades that about 50, you can pick whatever statistic you want. Some say 47%, some, some say as high as 60%. So the idea that, that a 50-50 crapshoot of sticking the landing on an ascent is not new news. The fact that nobody's worked hard enough to actually prevent it or the things that we have done to seemingly believe we're helping assimilate, onboard, and prepare leaders, you know, are the equivalent of basically emptying the ocean with a spoon. And so, because what it actually takes to succeed is so much more complicated. The great news is that it's all learnable. Those four patterns we discovered were not some mysterious set of a genetic code that these people were lucky enough to have been born with. These were capabilities that they had acquired along the journey of their career. So we can prepare people to be successful in broader roles. To wait to start doing that after we've given them the, the first vice president job is probably not smart. But it is possible to get the landmines out of the way to stop doing the dumb things we do to set them up to fail and actually do the work to prepare them to be successful. And you know, every role in an organization has a place. It has an importance. But if we presume that the you know, the top several hundred jobs of a large enterprise, of the top 20% of the roles guiding the organization that we're leading, play a disproportionate role in determining the success of an organization, then that that, that don't those roles deserve a disproportionate level of investment and preparation to make sure they're successful? So I, I share your puzzlement, Ramas. It's odd that we've accepted it for so long. 
Yeah, see, and then the other thing that also pops into my mind as I listen to you is if you know that the failure rate is so high, are people being prepared for these executive roles differently? Or uh, has that been beefed up in order to reduce the fatality rates? I think we know the statistics about how many billions of dollars are spent every year on leadership development of all kinds. The coaching industry is emerged with a vengeance. Efforts have been intensified, I think, as evidenced by the investment dollars and the prevalence of leadership workshops and leadership books and coaching. Whether or not those efforts are effective, I think, is what remains the question. Are we doing the right preparation? still think there are some fundamental flaws in our leadership development machine. You saw Barbara Hammond's book from Harvard, The End of Leadership. You see lots of people, Pfeffer's book on No More Leadership BS. So you're seeing people start to call the question on the, on the leadership industry with good reason. I love to see us now get more critical about if we're going to keep investing those dollars, and we should, doing the work that actually works, change behavior, to build muscle, to prepare leaders for what it means to lead at very precarious altitudes in organizations. I think one of the biggest dangers I see in across many efforts, whether it's in workshops or learning or even in coaching, is that these efforts are so devoid of context. We take these leaders out of their environment. We, we remove them from the context. We remove our assessments or analysis of their behavior from the context, and we isolate them. Um, and then we leave the importance of translation. What do you mean uh, you take them out of context? We send them off to Harvard. We send them off to Stanford. We send them off to workshops. We send them off to training programs. We uh-huh. remove them from the world in which they have to lead uh-huh. and imbue them with concepts and models and frameworks and tools, but devoid of the context they actually have to apply them in. Going back to your study, you know, what were the key findings of the study? I noticed that you summarized them into seven areas and then you boiled them down into four specific items. Mm-hmm. So the four patterns that consistently set leaders apart, and I, I'll preface this by saying what was difficult about the data and why we did 99 different regression analyses on it is because no matter how we cut the data up, these four rose to the top. But that was because these leaders were good at all of them. So leaders who were good at three of the four were in the failure group. Even three out of four were failures? Even three out of four were failures. And I hated that, Rom, which is why we kept going back to the, to the, to the research team. And after 99 different analyses, they said, Ron, it's not going to change. It's all four or it's nothing. I gulped and I swallowed, but when I dug deeper into how did these leaders acquire these four capabilities, they were learned. These were not mysterious pixie dust sprinkled on them. They, over their careers, they had had enough experiences and development and self-awareness to cultivate them. So the great news was they're learnable. And here they are. So the first one is context. These leaders could read the tea leaves around them. They could understand, understood that they had as much to influence, be influenced by in the environment as they had to impose change. So they didn't just assume that their ideas or their answers could be slapped on the environment, but they understood that they had to adapt. One of the ways we set leaders up to contextually fail is in the very selection process. Still, the two most commonly used devices to select people are the two least reliable, the resume and the interview. And so as I go through my resume, I'll say things like, well, Ron, my gosh, you've launched four other drugs so successfully at Pfizer and Amgen. That's what we need here. Or, Ram, you've really built these incredible relationships with medical affairs and other departments. That's what we need. When I say those things to you, I'm setting you up to fail because I'm implying you have a formula. I'm implying you have a recipe. So I just want you to come here and apply. Well, we've all seen it. People come into organizations and they start 
slapping on their ancestors under the mythical mandate of, this is what I was hired for. And when the organization resists, they push harder. And then within a year, what's the classic term? Well, they weren't a good fit. So the leaders who didn't, who bypassed those context failures could read context. They could adapt. They could learn. They were curious. They asked questions about trends, about technologies, about disruptions. They asked questions about why things were done certain ways. They didn't just impose answers. Second pattern was breadth. So these are the leaders who understood that they now had to go from being first chair to conductor. They had to elevate the story. They would know, so if they grew up in finance, they didn't just see the world economically. If they grew up in marketing, they didn't just see the world through consumers. They understood that the parts of the organization fit together into a whole, and they could see that whole. And they knew that the places where that transformation happened was at the seams of the organization. They knew that at the intersection of marketing and sales, at the intersection of medical affairs and government affairs, at the intersection of R&D and marketing were the places where capabilities were built, and they knew how to traverse those seams. They knew how to bring people together where they were being pulled apart. They knew how to create cohesion instead of more silos and fragmentation. The third pattern was called choice. Now, these were the leaders who understood how to make really hard trade-offs. Too often, leaders struggle with the power that came with their role, and they abandoned it. They dealt out too many yeses. They wanted to please people. They wanted to win people's loyalty over And so they diluted the focus of the organization by giving people too many yeses and too little focus. The successful leaders were not afraid to say no. They weren't afraid to disappoint people for the greater benefit of having the organization's resources focus on a few things in order to be successful. And the last capability was, not surprisingly, connection. These are the leaders everybody wanted to work for. These are the ones who are seen as kind and generous and smart and developing of others. And the most important thing that set them apart was these are the leaders who made other people's success a priority. What people consistently said of them was, I knew I mattered to them, and I knew that they had my back. They wanted me to grow and develop. So these are the leaders, as they built their networks and strengthened their stakeholder networks, they prioritized who it was they could make successful, not who it was they needed something from. So breadth, context, choice, and connection. It's a very high bar, but the leaders who set themselves apart and stuck the landing did all four well. See, one thing that jumps at me immediately, Ron, is that these four attributes, they sound very logical to me. But what also strikes me is maybe I need to be in my 50s before I have a shot at being good at all four because you tell me that if I'm good at only three of the four, I'm likely to fail. So You know, Ram, I think that's how it's playing out in the real world, but I don't think it has to be that way. If we can start people in their early 20s and early 30s when they get their first, first line supervisor job, they can learn breadth. By understanding how does their department fit into the rest of the organization, they can do tours of duty in other departments. They can go learn the rest of the enterprise. They can go learn what it means to be on the other side of their work. So if they're in sales, go understand how marketing works. If you're in supply chain, go understand how logistics works. You can learn to build relationships. You can learn about how you impact the success of others. You can learn to be gratified not by your own success, by the impact you have on others. You can participate in governance structures. Even at the simplest decisions, you can learn to prioritize. You can learn the discomfort of saying no. You can learn the discomfort of saying, these are our three priorities, and we're going to stick to them. And you can learn context. You can read articles. You can learn about your industry. You can learn to question the status quo. You can learn curiosity, right? So the basic elements of these four things are all capabilities we can begin to cultivate very early in someone's career and continue to amplify them and refine them so that when someone gets to the mid-40s and they're getting their first senior director role or they're getting their first vice president role, they're prepared. But we're not doing that. So when we get to our first big role, it's a crash course. 
two other things that pop up as I listen to you. One is, let's say I'm a 25-year-old and I'm saying, you know, I want to become like this successful person. Or let's say I'm 40, whatever the age is, right? Is there a framework that you have that says, you know what, here are the X things you need to be at. Here is, it's kind of like a rubric that they use in schools, right? You know, here are the six criteria, four criteria. Here are the different levels. And, you know, you're at level one. You know, you need to kind of work towards level four. And that's when you'll be competent. You know what I mean? Yeah. So in the book, Rising to Power, which is what the research said was a, that book, the entire book is shaped around that rubric. The book is structured along the journey of an ascent. And then in the, in the later chapter, it's shaped around those four capabilities. But in the back of the book, we have a, a, indeed a five-page rubric that reshapes the entire journey around those four capabilities for the very reason you described. Is how would I know on the way up yeah. where I was or wasn't building these muscles? And it's been very gratifying. The research was named one of 2016 ideas that mattered most by Harvard Business Review. And more than the claim the book has gotten, there's nothing more gratifying than when I get an email from a leader who says, I got promoted you know, three, four months ago, I'm working with the material and oh my gosh, it's changing the choices I make. It's changing how I think about my relationship with my peers. It's changing how I acclimatize to this new altitude. Because uh -huh. these are great people. These are people who are seen with great potential. They wouldn't have been promoted or given the job or hired if they weren't seen as promising. And so to know that we're helping prevent the derailment of otherwise very promising women and men is extremely gratifying. I also noticed in reading one of your white papers that you label this progression as an ascent, you know, mm -hmm. climbing up, and you make it sound like it's a continuous journey. Was that a concerted reason why you made it sound as a continuous journey as opposed to discrete milestones or discrete goals? It's such a great question, Ram. And we had a long debate because, you know, publishers would have wanted us to just publish the four secrets of an executive, right? Yeah. But that's not honest. For me, it wasn't honest because that's not how life, real life happens. Real life happens, you know, I get promoted and suddenly I feel very disoriented. I feel dizzy. We actually liken it to altitude sickness when you ascend too high to a mountain too quickly <laughs> and you get, you know, thin-headed thin and, thin, and you, you struggle to breathe. Because that's often what it feels like for a newly appointed leader who's leading at the highest place of their career. Part of how we did the research was we isolated 100 leaders in mid-ascent to see a look in slow motion to see what was it that was causing all these explosions or these you know, implosions. Hmm. And so we thought, gosh, we have to be true to the journey, right? We, we can be true to the research without compromising the journey. But, but the truth is people experience the journey, right? They don't experience the four things. And so we wanted leaders to feel accompanied. We wanted people to feel like we were, we were with them as trippers uh, on the way up the mountain. We did go back, like I said, we went back in the back of the book and said, okay, now if you're going to read this book all over again with the eye toward where do these four things show up, here's what it looks like. And we put that, you know, seven pages of a rubric in the back of the book that actually codifies and levels, just as you described, how these four things look on the way up at different levels. So we, we gave it to people. We gave, we gave them that. But I didn't want to write the book that way. Because that's not how life plays out. And to, to the leader who's you know, three months in and feeling like, am I crazy? Why are they looking at me this way? Why are they asking these questions? Why do I walk in the room and I feel funny? How come these people that used to love me don't talk to me anymore? For them, that's not real life. I wanted them to go, we get it. We've seen it. We under You're not crazy. Here's why this is happening right now in real time. And here's what you can go do about it now.
So that's why we chose to write the book that way. I wanted to be true to the leader struggling, not to the academic concepts of the research. One other thing that pops out is, you know, you said 50 to 70% of executives who get into new leadership roles fail. What are the most common reasons you found why people fail? Because, see, I have a thing in, in, from our research. I tell them, you know, I'm going to tell you something that is absolutely obvious once I state it to you, and it's absolute common sense. The number one reason why people fail to succeed is because they fail. It sounds very simplistic, but it's self-sabotage. So it makes me wonder, what did you find? Why were the people, well, why, what are the know, most I common mean, reasons? I think that there are psychic reasons people do self-sabotage their own success, but I think often it's they don't understand what's happening. So in the four dimensions, connection and context were the fast failures. They failed to read context. They came in and under a mythical mandate, they came to be the Messiah. The more the organization resisted, the more their diagnosis became an indictment, right? We've all seen it happen where the leader says, you didn't tell me it was this bad. Oh my gosh, how have you people survived until now? You start, and, they, and they start to judge the environment. And the minute people feel judged or indicted by a leader, you're game over. The failure to read context and to adapt to context, not just enough to be able to be credible, but not so much that you go native, was a quick failure. The other quick failure was connection. And specifically, your relationship with peers and direct reports are the two greatest, not people spend too much time managing up. And your bosses at that altitude are removed from you, but your peers and direct reports have the power to pull the plug and back away from you and cause you to fail. And they will do it in force if you alienate them or you scare them or you make them think that you're, you're crafting a story that excludes them. They will back away from you and you will be isolated. And at a higher altitude in an organization, being isolated is one of the most dangerous places there is to be. Threat and choice were slower failures, and here's why. If your organization's governance structure is highly dysfunctional, it's, you know, it's highly bureaucratic and decisions are very slow, or it's the wild, wild west and people are cowboys and everybody's making solo range decisions that work across purposes with each other. If you're not good at choice making, you'll blend right in. So your insufficiency at choice making won't show up right away. The same with breadth. If you're a highly siloed organization or you're very fragmented or there's a lot of border wars or there's a lot of disconnection across an enterprise, it's highly vertically integrated and not the processes don't work. Your breadth failure will take a while to show up. So each of them has, can cause a, a leader to fail, but primary ones that cause the quickest ones were a failure of context, a failure to adapt, and a failure of connection. You alienated or failed to connect with the people most important in your orbit. Now, what could be the sabotaging reasons for that? I mean, you know, my, my conclusion from a relationship point of view, maybe I don't need you, or I haven't decided that I'm going to fire you or not, so I'm not going to get close to you, or... I'm not going to get close to you as a peer, even though you used to be my boss, because now you're a rival. You're my nemesis, so I can't be close to you, right? So you have these narratives in your head that are interpreting the landscape, probably misinterpreting the landscape, but you're taking the bait. You're being triggered. You don't know you're being triggered, and your behavior in those relationships is actually sabotaging your success, and you don't even see it, and nobody's going to tell you. One thing that, in my mind, was surprisingly absent from these four important factors that you identified was the ability to execute, the ability to make things happen. Is that somehow embedded in the four that you mentioned? All of them contribute to results, right? So uh, presuming we, an executive is not coming to work every day and just sitting in the chair wondering what to do, the question is, what are you working on? 
and how are you working on it, right? So context contributes to results by showing that you have the right data informing your choices. Choice obviously contributes to execution in that you're, you're actually narrowing the focus and the resources of the organization to get the right things done and versus getting too much done. At that level, you have to have the relationships to do it, right? Nothing you do is done in isolation. No executive uh, at the highest levels operates in isolation. Everything you do is connected to something else. Many executives don't behave that way, but the reality is to get lasting results versus flashing the pen results, you have to have the network of people around you to do it. And lastly, you have to build the organization to do it, right? So at that point, you're an organization architect. If you can't build the capabilities underneath you, to get things done sustainably, your results will be short-lived. So breadth means you can put the pieces of the organization together in the right configuration. You can assemble the assets in the right way to actually execute the right work sustainably. So all of them are contributors of execution and results. But telling somebody, be successful by getting things done, you may unleash a terrorist on the organization who will get results, but there'll be a wake of bodies behind them. Going back to your ascent, I really like the analogy and many of the steps that you laid out in there. What is the ultimate aspiration of an individual who continues from success to success? How is that different from somebody who uh, reaches a very low uh, level, uh, ascends very little, and then hits a wall and collapses? Part of the question we ask readers in the very beginning of the book is, do you know what it is you want? Because the one thing that most executive development literature, HR departments won't tell you is that if you aspire to lead at the highest levels, you're going to suffer. It's hard. It's often unforgiving. It can be ruthlessly exposing. It can be personal torture to lead at high levels. So you have to know what it is you want. You have to know what impact you want to make. You have to understand greater good you want to serve because whatever self-interest you may be indulging, you're going to quickly learn that it's not worth that. And so we ask readers you know, to really soul search. Why do you want to lead at these levels? Why do you aspire to lead broad parts of an enterprise or large communities of people? Because if you're not clear on what the answer to that is, you shouldn't do it. And what are some interesting answers you have heard over the last several years? Well, the ones that I've heard that actually are sustainable are ones that are outside yourself. I mean, one of the privileges that comes with broader levels of influence in an organization is broader levels of power. And leaders, too many leaders were unable to handle the power. We often assume the greatest abuse of power is for self-interest. But actually, in the research, the greatest abuse of power was the abandonment of it. People too uncomfortable to use it, so they, they set it aside. But the reality is, we saw three sources of power in the research, power in information, power in position, and power in relationships. And your power in your position has the ability to bring justice, a sense of organizational justice where there are injustices, which liberates people's confidence and authority and trust. In your connections, you have the ability, the power to liberate people's discovery of the greatest versions of themselves, the impact you can have on people's careers and lives for them to become their best versions of themselves is disproportionate to other levels of the organization, and you have the power to make that impact. And informationally, you have the power to change minds. You have the power to, to broaden people's views. You have to broaden people's perspectives to make people think at higher altitudes with the information that you have available to you. So the impact you can have on the lives of many, many employees, customers, suppliers is disproportionate. And if you are not ready to embrace that impact or you don't find it incredibly thrilling and also a privilege, then you're probably not going to enjoy executive leadership. But for those that are passionate about that, the impact they can have and humble about the privilege it is to do it, 
they're the ones that usually can withstand the suffering and the struggles and the trials that come with higher levels of leadership. One other thing, you know, you interviewed several thousand people. Were there things that jump out at you as contrast between perhaps, say, the 25 best performing and the 25 worst performing executives? Well, I think what was disturbing was that we didn't contrast the bottom and the top. We contrast the top to the near top. It was disturbing that somebody could be phenomenal at connection and choice, not so good at context and terrible at breadth and not succeed. We know that the idiots, the nimrods, the jerks, the self-serving assholes, we all know there are some of those. They're actually not the predominant out there. They're just the loudest minority. I didn't need to bother to study why they failed. They, they made that evident. Mm-hmm. But understanding why you could be almost so good mm-hmm. and at the top of and in the middle of an organization be just fine, right? Mm-hmm. But at the top of an organization, your first vice president job or your first senior director job, suddenly be a disaster. I think that was disturbing for us because I wouldn't have expected that. So I guess that goes to another old adage that success is an and function. You need, you know, one and two and three and four, whereas failure is an or function. You can fail with one or two or three or four. All it takes is one of them. It's kind of like the weakest link. We annoyed the heck out of our research team by making them going back and (laughs) recutting the data because I didn't want to have to say that. I, I wanted it not to be true. I wanted to say, no, no, it'll, it'll be, you can be good at three and work on one while you're up there and it'll be fine. And, but the data didn't bear that out. It was a hard pill to swallow. But much as I wanted to say something else, that's not, I, I didn't have the data to support it. So to people who are listening to the podcast who are aspiring to executive roles, what are some pearls of wisdom that you can share from all of this research that you've done? It's never too late to prepare. And it's never too early to prepare. If you're within a year of a promotion or you aspire to a higher role in your organization, the best time to have started getting ready for that was a year ago. The second best time is now. So don't wait to start building your connections, figuring out how it is your choice-making apparatus is built, understanding breadth, understanding the themes of the organization around you and stitching those themes to create more cohesion and and reduce the fragmentation. And context, learn and to adapt, learn to read the environment around you, learn to read the technologies, the trends, the customer patterns, the supplier patterns, the industry patterns of which you are a part, and interpret what they mean for your role. You can start doing that now, and I would encourage people to not waste a second if, in fact, what they aspire to is broader leadership. Well, one other big thing that keeps popping up as I listen to you, Ron, is there are so many people who read so many books, so many, I mean, there are gazillion business books that are published every year, and there are so many magazines uh, talking about business, and yet very few people succeed. There seems to be a clear gap between people knowing what needs to be done and doing what needs to be done. Yeah, we read that book in the 90s, The Knowing Doing Gap. It's a perplexing thing. It's not, it's not like there aren't good answers and good insights out there. I'm proud of rising to power, and I'm proud of the problems we solve, but by all means, it's not the most you know singular book out there that's going to save the world. There are plenty of great, plenty of crap out there that people, you know, people just whip stuff out and publish it. But there's plenty of really well-documented, researched, thoughtful, accessible, elegant concepts on how to lead that I've, you know, thought about over the years. I think we have a generation coming up now in the workplace who are, who, you know, for whom we're having to figure out how to regurgitate all for them so they can hear it and listen to it. But I still think we're not doing the, the deeper work with leaders, the deeper contextualized work with them to help them shape and change their behavior. I think we're leaving it too much to chance. 
believing it too much to the books, to the academics, to the readers, too much to the generic workshops that, you know, he's a go online for three hours and watch this video and that's the extent of your leadership development. And I think we're just leaving too much of it to oversimplified efforts. So, Ron, uh, thank you very much for sharing your insights with us. I hope we'll be able to revisit with you in a few months and learn more about what you're learning from working with executives around the world. Ram, it's a pleasure talking to you as always. Thanks so much for having me on your show, and I hope your listeners uh, find something helpful in our conversation. Um, if they want to stay in touch, they can come find me at Ron at Navalent, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T dot com. We have a free ebook for them on how we lead transformation organizations. If they want to come to Navalent dot com slash transformation, they can find that there. Also on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter, so let's keep the conversation going. Thank you for listening to Business Thinking Radio. If you'd like to comment on this episode, please send an email to podcast at businessthinking.com. This is Ram Ayer signing off. Thank you for listening to the Ram Ayer Podcast. Every week, we bring you the thought-provoking and practical conversations to help you become better, smarter, and more successful, helping you achieve your personal greatness. All from the perch of Ram Ayer, the thought leader, author, keynote speaker, workshop leader, and mentor. If you want to comment on this episode, please email us at podcasts at mitramaya.com. If you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit www.mitramaya.com forward slash podcasts or find the Ram Aya podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever fine podcasts are uploaded. <laughs>